This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, the business station? 37 a.m. Good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wong Xiaoning and Philip C. This is WTF, or What's the Focus, our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits that you may have missed. We essentially make sure that you swan off into the weekend full of interesting topics and nuggets of information to share with whomever you meet uh, as you go out and about. Uh, we are going to start off with what's happening over in Hong Hollywood because the Hollywood strike just got a lot bigger. The Screen Actors Guild, also known as the SAG-AFTRA, has announced that it's going on strike as of midnight on Thursday LA time. So 160,000 actors will join some 11,000 writers in strike action against movie and TV studios. Yes, that means it's been, to be fair, the writers have been striking since May 2nd, so it's been about 70 days since they stopped work. This is the largest shutdown to Hollywood for about 40 years, right? Because it's a double strike involving both unions. For me, this is a really consequential time because of the of the conditions and terms being negotiated in the strike. And one key element was this whole guarantee that artificial intelligence and computer-generated faces and voices will not be used to replace actors. I've never really seen AI become part of union negotiations. Is this such a big threat that it has to be now? Or are these actors thinking ahead and, "Mm, will I be replaced by... CGI, which of course you already see a lot of CGI in mm. movies today, right? A lot of the action sequences are fake. Uh, so yeah. it's just an extension of it. And of course, you know what's the best thing about CGI? You don't need to pay them. They don't need breaks and they can work 24-7. And they don't need plastic surgery. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. I think that's the... Int- yeah. I, w- I was just going to say that, yes, I, I mean, this is what uh, actors and writers are really fighting for right now. It is it's the survival of their of their profession, craft. essentially, right? Because yeah. even though things haven't changed drastically yet, but they are, they can see the trends coming and they don't want to be caught five, ten years down the line where suddenly they're working under conditions in which they cannot continue. And don't forget, we often see the actors as these huge movie stars and earning lots of money, but actually the vast majority of them are mm-hmm. really just doing this. I mean, they're living paid Paycheck for paycheck, almost, mm. you know, just day to day actors, uh, the extras, the people in advertising and stuff. So, uh, again, stunt performers, apparently, everything's included. So, even if you act, sing, dance, and you're a stunt performer, or you're involved in puppeteering or motion capture work, you're all part of the actors. Yes. I mean, for me, I'm intrigued with these terms because I wonder if it will trigger and, you know, have a if not going to affect on other industries, whether you'll see in future union negotiations some element of job guarantees to make sure that they're not replaced by artificial intelligence. Because this is, I think, always the challenge. I mean, in the past you know, six months, we've seen so many union negotiations taking place in the developed world mm. about pay increases. Starbucks, right? UPS, yep. Amazon. Amazon. So I wonder if the tone and tenure of these conversations are going to evolve a lot, especially with artificial intelligence now in the mix because again so many conversations about it being a job killer being able to substitute many road parts and now not only road parts but even creative parts as reflected in this uh, strike with the actors so what's going to happen to us though as we uh, i mean we view movies we watch tv uh, is there going to be just much less programming out there available I mean, it's really the studios and producers that need to be worried, right? So ahead of I'm the- worried. There's nothing. I mean, what 
Don't you all switch on Netflix over the weekend or go to the movies? Right now, what television uh, producers have done, you see a lot more reality TV mm. come up. I think the fall lineup is all like a reality show. How many mm. Love uh, Islands can you watch? <laughs> well, they're or renovation ho- programs. They're hoping that that viewers will watch a lot. And I think we did see that back in 2007, 2008 when the last uh, writer's strike happened, That's right? right. But, if, but if I put myself in the big studio shoes, their biggest threat isn't themselves, but you know, it's the social media platforms. It's YouTube, it's Google. YouTube has all these short video forms. So really, look, will we really miss these blockbusters? Because we will have alternative forms of entertainment still, you know, through these other creators that are now democratized bottom up. So there is a reality check that I think big studios are pushing back on these terms because they know that they are not competing among themselves, but with you know, these bottom-up creators. But I suppose if you want to take the laborer's point of view, I mean, it's, is it fair that studios gain all these massive profits and it's not being seen, it's not being distributed more mm. fairly among those that are actually creating the content of which they monetize from? So uh, we're going to see how long this lasts. The writer's strike, as you said, has been do- has been going on mm. for months now. Uh, how long is it going to continue? And will we? when are we going to start to see it affect what we watch on TV, right? Okay, so some immediate consequences of this already want to highlight one which is this rather unusual story so Oppenheimer which is supposed to open in London has been moved forward by an hour to ensure that the cast can attend because the strike starts around that time the popular Comic Con event in San Diego due, that always takes place in late July and of course it's a huge event right you see all those Marvel comics and all those kind of action hero movies uh, being premiered there that looks to be badly hit and if you're a fan of of all these movies, guess what? You're probably not going to see much promotional activity. Um, teen, teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh my goodness, are they still around? Uh, Mutant Mayhem, Haunted Mansion, and Blue Beetle. I said all these names, but I have no idea what they are. <laughs> not for, not for your... Age. Yeah, you're not the audience intended for this. But, Excuse me, but, but never mind. But there we go. Uh, we will see some effect on this. Uh, so yeah, we'll be keeping an eye on this story. But let's turn our attention to the other big story of the week. And that's really what was happening on the international security front because NATO held its annual summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, and there were just a lot of headlines coming out of it, especially as the Ukraine war continues on. um, And the question of whether uh, NATO solidarity uh, can really hold the longer this war continues. I mean, I think the pros, or I mean, if you think on two sides, they did green light Sweden's accession to the military bloc. Turkey did finally agree to, you know, to Sweden's accession. But on the flip side, of course, there was a commitment to continue to support Ukraine, but no timeline was given over uh, Ukraine's uh, accession into NATO. And so I think that was very disappointing. And even President's Vladimir Zelensky was clearly unhappy. It was interesting though because he did do like a, 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 a what a flip, a, a flip and switch, right? Degree switch, didn't he? Overnight, literally. Exactly. So initially, he was very. Um, I could say he, like you said, he was very disappointed mm. that the NATO didn't give him a clearer timeline. But I think after that, especially when he met with President Joe Biden and they had the uh, NATO Ukraine uh, Defense Council meeting, his tone definitely shifted, and he tried to appear more um, conciliatory and more grateful in a way uh, for what uh, the Western allies have been giving to Ukraine. Because there is a lot of support. I think we're talking about the hundreds of billions of dollars here in which they've given military weapons to Ukraine. Okay, so apparently um, some of the 
officials, the UK, one of UK official actually said, what do you think we are? Amazon, you know, you mm-hmm. want stuff, we just deliver it. It doesn't work that way. And I think the reality is that, okay, if you've been pro- providing weapons to Ukraine for more than 400 days, 500 days already, actually everyone's ammunition deposits or what's left in the inventory has come perilously low. So everyone's like, look, we want to give, but even then, there's not much more to give already. So what, what do you want us to do? But then that's one aspect of it. The other aspect, of course, that Zelensky was not happy about was, you're not giving me a definitive timeline in mm. which I can join NATO. You're saying I can one day when the war is over, but what does that mean? Right. I think there's also the question of... Um, domestic politics of all these individual countries as well that they need to navigate with. So while on one hand, yes, they want to show support to Ukraine, but they also have to be mindful of how their own population views the support that they're giving. So that's the kind of, I suppose, nuance that they're hoping Ukraine can understand rather than simply just you know continue to demand and also berate uh, them for not giving them what Ukraine wants. Absolutely. I think this is why in the United States, people are watching whether they can conclude this war before the US presidential election, which is in end of next year, 2024. The debate I see, and you know, Shani, you made a very interesting point about ammunition. If you recall earlier in the week, so much debate about these cluster bombs, mm. right? That it was really, you know, in con- De- defying conventions. But, but you to notice, be fair, Russia, US, and Ukraine did not sign up to the convention. They did not sign up to it. But what's very interesting is the tone has really dropped, right? There hasn't been much criticism after that, after it was agreed that the US would provide these cluster bombs The US to perspective is, look, you know, um, we're not giving it f- to Ukraine to use in other territories. We are giving it to use in their territories. This is an invasion. We are helping them protect their own country. And this was done at the request of Ukraine. They asked for these yes. munitions. And I would I would argue that countries did speak out about it. The UK did say that they weren't yes. in agreement. Spain wasn't. Even Germany, they were a little bit, you know, softer. But, I but think they didn't push hard, in my view, right, about these cluster bombs. And in the end, the reality is, does it go, does it go to show that really Ukraine is short of ammunition? In, I, I suppose. And in a way, it's not like they could have done anything about it because mm. it was a bilateral transaction in any case. But yes, all these to show that there are cracks um, in uh, in what's happening and we'll just keep following the developments but overall the NATO summit did show that uh, united front at, at the end at least and we'll just see how long that holds uh, 9.46 in the morning uh, we do have a quick message before we head into the break Do you drive an electric vehicle and are you concerned about where you can charge it? Jintari is aiming to be Asia Pacific's preferred green mobility solutions provider with ongoing partnerships in Singapore and Thailand. This means not only will you have more options in Malaysia, you can even find charging points when you drive across the border. Find out more about Gentari's solutions when Keith Kam speaks to Shahyang Razali, Gentari's Chief Green Mobility Officer on Tuesday, the 18th of July at 7.45am. We'll be back with more top stories after a few messages. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. 9.49 a.m. Thanks for staying tuned to The Morning Run. You're listening to WTF or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. and Wong Xiaoning. Let's turn our attention to some of the local stories that have dominated the discussion this week. So the approach of the government in assuaging cost of living concerns has come under scrutiny following a rather controversial infographic issued by JCOM, the Community Communications Department. It depicted the amount of groceries uh, that those from a certain segment of income can actually afford uh, and it said that a family of four could actually survive or could actually spend 391 ringgit on uh, essential groceries. I was just doing the maths on this. That means actually it's RM1 ringgit per person per meal a day. Oh, I mean, I'm thinking, how, how does that compute, right? If it's 391 for a month, 30 days a week and there's three meals, 
essentially it's equivalent to close to one ringgit per person per meal. Uh, it's not only okay. Aside from that, that you know, honestly, that that insufficient amount. It's also what's in that infographic. Okay. Yes. Um, so our um, minister for communications had come out to say, Fami Fadil, he said. The information there is correct. There's nothing inaccurate about it, but he admits his tone death. And I think asking Malaysians to survive on two loaves of bread, um, two chickens, a bag of rice, a tray of 30 eggs and a gas tank over a month. I might have missed some things, but a month is really a hard ask. So again, I, th- I think uh, the Director General for JCOM, uh, Muhammad Agus Yusuf, also came out to explain that this infographic was actually meant to counter false narratives that, um, you know, prices for certain uh, controlled items have gone up. You know, he's trying to show, I think the idea was the government was trying to show that they were doing something to help uh, consumers with the cost of living. But really the way it was presented, uh, as the minister himself has admitted, uh, was not uh, the best approach. And it brings to question, like, does the government... Uh, know what it's doing when it's trying to message, give public messaging, you know, in, in this kind of thing. Like, how, it really needs to fine-tune its strategy on that regard. I mean, I think the government just has to be very clean and clear about these things, which is, let's just look at the item itself and show the increase, right? I think when you start aggregating all these items and try to define the aggregation, this is when it gets into very choppy waters and that's where you get so many debates. So really, I think this is where also, if you recall in many elections, right, you talk about Kangkong, you talk about Sawi, and you compare the price of that and everybody mocks you for that, right? But I think that actually is a bit more clearer as mm. opposed to trying being disingenuous and trying to aggregate a basket of goods and saying that's suitable for this demographical group. Maybe then the narrative should shift away in terms of the cost of living to what the government is doing in terms of helping you raise your income. The reason why I'm saying this is because the cost of living in many ways, uh, you're just showing, especially for this pictorial infographic, you're just showing all these control items. So it's not really a true reflection of what's out there. And to be fair, the government can't control the price of everything. It would not work in an economy. But narrative should be, what are you doing to help us earn much more money? I think that's such an interesting perspective because on the other flip side, you see, you know, our economy minister saying we should do a progressive wage model, Mm. which is basically impose wage increases, right, across the board. So I think it's also the other flip side. Which is another form of mandatory. Which is another form of mandatory. So it's quite fundamentally is how are you really improving income levels, right? In addition to driving more investments into the country, are you upscaling? Are you helping Malaysia take higher paying jobs? I think that's really the issue. But as we all know, the challenge with that is that this is not going to be done overnight. And so then you have this whole veneer that is it being politicized because we're entering state elections. Mm. So this is really the fundamental question. They're trying to address it on the cost side by, you know, doing all these aggregation things. Now on the other side, which is the income, they try and increase, impose some kind of mandatory, but let's just see what happens after state elections, whether this is going to be mooted or not. I think that is the big, uh, that's key thing we need to watch, whether they'll put their money where their mouth is after all the political uh, motivations die Mm. down. Mm. And really, this is the reason why we need... stable government so that they have that runway to actually properly implement policy instead of always responding to the next political uh, impetus or political stimulus. Um, In any case, let's quickly cover another story that was discussed over the week, and that was regarding education. Um, The uh, Prime Minister, Dr. Anwar Ibrahim, earlier in the week had said something about uh, quotas and how uh, the government was going to maintain uh, Bumiputra quotas for higher education. This is a long-standing debate. Yeah, and I think there was a lot of confusion because what do they mean? 
mean by higher education? We're not talking about the university level, are we? We were talking about matriculation in detail? Right now, what in the specifics? quota applies to is the uh, matric- uh, pre-university courses, essentially. Mm. Matriculation colleges, a certain other um, pre-U courses that are for a particular segment. And we sp- actually spoke to um, Dr. Lee Huaon of the IC's Yusuf Isha Institute um, on affirmative action. And really, how can we rethink the programs that we implement at the moment? Because we have had some form of quota for the past couple of decades. Have they been effective? And if they're not, we really should think of changing them. I think this connects to the earlier story where we say, look, the goal is to basically increase everyone's income. And the best way is to upskill. And perhaps one of the best ways to upskill is to have access to higher education as one pathway to do that. And so, of course, when the government looks at the data and sees income inequality in certain segments and Mm. groups, right, then it says, okay, maybe we have to address it through affirmative action. The next question then is, how do you slice and dice the data? Must you slice and dice it by race? Must you slice and dice it by income level? Or needs based. Or needs based, right? So you can do affirmative action, but what is the lens you apply to is, I think, core. And I think what um, uh, uh, Lee Hua'an also said is that we shouldn't be so binary about it. It really Mm. needs to be uh, comprehensive and it can cover all these issues, needs-based, race-based, high achievers, you know, and it shouldn't be just one or the other, not a black and white thing. Just relate. Oh, yeah. My issue is political will. Mm. I don't think uh, our top civil servants and ministers haven't given this much thought. It's just that it's going to be a very difficult process and there'll be no perfection to it, right? No perfection to the model. And who has the political will to actually start that ball rolling? And it'll be so politicised along the way. Political will and also just vision and foresight because a lot of the times it's very reactionary and knee-jerk the reactions. Mm -hmm. Just overnight, we saw how the Ministry of Education is looking to reform STPM uh, into uh, pre-university colleges, right? But is this just a cosmetic change? I I feel like there really needs to be a lot more discussion on this. But it is 9.55 in the morning. We're going to head into the 9.30 a.m. news bulletin, not the 10 a.m. news bulletin, apologies. Uh, And after that, we're going to hand over to Enterprise. So stay tuned for that. BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.